Welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Tuan Tranfam, who has been working in the 3D printing space for the past 17 years. In fact, he refers to uh, to himself as a 3D printing evangelist. Uh, has a very interesting history before moving to the U.S. in early 2000, but we'll get to that. Um, Tuan currently holds the title of Chief Revenue Officer at Arivo, where they manufacture composite 3D printed components for everything from bikes to flying cars. So with that, Tuan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm super pleased to be here today. Great, great. Well, well, let's uh, let's kind of start at the beginning here. Um, you have been in the U.S. for about twenty years, but but before that, uh, you uh, you were born in Vietnam and uh, you uh, you ended up emigrating to uh, Denmark. Can you tell us a little bit about that that transition? Sure. Um, so back in uh, uh, so my great grandfather is, is Chinese. So in the seventy nine. Uh, there were a border dispute with China. And so therefore, any Vietnamese, with, uh, especially with Chinese heritage, were not so uh, popular. So I was part of the migration. About a million Vietnamese escaped and left the communism and uh, Vietnam back in 79. And about half of them died due to pirates or a storm. A big Chunk, a big group went to Hong Kong, another big group went to Thailand, uh, uh, but uh, a big chunk went to went straight south to Malaysia, and the Malaysian Coast Guard just picked everybody up, put us on a four-acre, it was a, an island, it's not a resort, it was an island that was supposed to fit 5,000 Vietnamese boat refugee, it ended up having 40,000 Vietnamese. 40,000, and, and, and- this was all. Uh, I mean, it was. It was not like you were in a, a you know, a nice cruise ship or a yacht no. going to Malaysia, right? You were. I mean, I'm assuming packed into uh, small boats, and you had to brave the sea and, and pirates. It sounds like. Do you, yeah, do you so, remember much from that time? So I was barely six. I don't remember much besides what my parents told me. But remember, it's, it's more than that. It's just getting a seat on one of these rice boats. Um, and, you know, it's not like you can tell people, hey, you want to buy a boat? Here's a shuttle to somewhere else. No, it's, it's all stealth. If you get caught by the police, you're going to jail. Wow. Or rehabilitation camps and all that. But to get a seat, you have to sell everything. My parents sold everything to just to get the seat for us. And they had, uh, I have two younger brothers back then. But you sold all your life savings and to get the seat. And knowing that you might die or by pirates or so. And if you're lucky and you bump into a tanker, you have to destroy your boat so that they, by law, have to rescue you. Otherwise, they are not obligated. They can just sail on and not rescue you. So it's it's not that straightforward. That is incredible. It really makes me grateful for the very comfortable life that I have enjoyed. Well, you spent some time uh, in this camp in Malaysia, and then ended up in Denmark, where, uh, if, if I have my history right, you lived for uh, over 20 years. What uh, what did you do in Denmark? So, um, so we really want to go to the U.S. That was my, that was all, all the Vietnamese, because of the war, the Americans helped the South. I was born in Saigon, which is Ho Chi Minh City, so everybody knew of the U.S. and wanted to go. So you can imagine the, the wait list is pretty long. Uh, alternatively, you could go to Australia. Uh, 
That was the other alternative. Um, so we were hoping to go to the US, uh, but my youngest brother had an ear infection and he, need, he needed medical attention. And the Danes um, were like, why don't you go to Denmark? It's like, where is Denmark? But it turns out that, uh, <laughs> that, that the waiting list to Denmark was much shorter. And it turns out to be awesome for a refugee because he's very socialistic. Uh, the government, you pay more than 50% tax, but free education, free dental, health care. It almost pays to remain unemployed than getting a, a low-paying job. So oh, it's wow. really... It's it's a really good country. I could be study whatever I want to become as long as my grades were good. So it worked out well. So uh, when I got there, when I was six, so we only ended up in the camp, Malaysian camp, for six months. Uh, some stayed for 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 years, um, but so I grew up uh, in Denmark, south of Copenhagen. So you can say that after twenty three years. Um, done the schooling and high school and military service and got my business engineering degree. So I'm, I'm very Danish in my mannerism, in the way I think, because I was brought up by the, amongst the, the Vikings, right? The Danes were right. one of the original, the Scandinavian, <laughs> the Norwegian Vikings. So they're all everywhere. I was like the only Asian kid in my class. And around me, I have all these white, uh, blonde Danes, much taller than me. So I stood out. <laughs> well, I, I can um, appreciate that. I grew up in Hawaii where I was the only white kid in the class. You know, everyone else so was Japanese or Hawaiian or Filipino. And then there was me, the, the Howley in the class. But yeah, I can relate for sure. Um, you mentioned growing up uh, amongst the Danes. What what kind of um, what's the culture like? What's the mindset like there? What are some of the um, I don't know mannerisms or things that you took from from growing up in that culture? Well, uh, I would say uh, I I feel very blessed and and thankful to have grown up in Denmark. It's a very good country, very socialistic, very caring. And remember, it's in the Danish blood, the Danish Viking, they like to travel, they like adventure. Um, they are uh, considered, uh, they have done a lot of uh, Danita work, uh, humanitarian uh, services and support uh, hospitals, uh, both into Asia. So they have a lot of goodwill, good people, uh, good intention. They took a lot of uh, uh, refugees back in the 79, 80s. And they were also very good at integrating them into the Danish society. Um, so uh, it was, uh, they were, um, they even had a body system for each refugee family. There was a, a body family of Danish that who volunteered to really? help to integrate you. So my summer was spent in, I thought I was being adopted, uh, given away, but I was actually being part of the summer camp, living in a Danish family. For the for a few months of the summer to get into the Danish society, they eat dark bread, the rye bread, not the the baguette bread, bread. And so, uh, it was a good experience. Uh, it's very Scandinavian. Uh, that's amazing! Wow, that's fantastic. It sounds like a, a truly um, terrific experience that you had there, given what you were coming from. So I also felt like I have to, um, I was always brought up to be very grateful. So I also gave back to society. So I did do military service in, t in case I needed to defend Denmark. 
And I also did uh, voluntarily uh, National Guard for five years to keep my military skill sets. So I, I felt like I also gave back to society uh, who has been so good to me. So it yeah. was a very good experience. Absolutely. But, but then after a while, uh, they have this, uh, this um, Yendelon, because I did mention it's a little bit socialistic. So that meant that they do not encourage you to be the best that you can be. So there mm. is this, don't think you're better than your neighbor or try not to stand out. Did you know in Denmark, they don't uh, celebrate or reward individual uh, achievements? That oh, is a really? big no-no. It's only group. We do it as a group, uh, ah. but we don't celebrate that. So when I work for a Danish company, we've got acquired uh, in uh, 80. I just joined a small semiconductor company. And four months in, we got acquired by Intel for 1.25 billion March 2000 before everything dropped. That was the biggest acquisition in Danish history. It impacted the the profit from that sale, paying half to the government. It was a the country made a lot of money on that deal. Wow! Yeah. So, so then I learned the American way of doing business, which is very different one the way of the Danish business environment and behavior where now the Americans, they celebrate individual accomplishment. That was a big no-no in Denmark. <laughs> and, and how did that sit with you when you saw these individual rewards from, from the U.S.? Did you think to yourself, oh, that's terrible. What are they doing? They shouldn't be celebrating individuals. Or did you think, hmm, I like this. I'd like to experience more of that. Yeah, so, so um, there was a LinkedIn post I, I posted on July 4th that even during my high school years, I always had a dream that I that my dream was to end up in America. So to answer your question with Intel, only validated that they want you to be the best you can be, which is what I wanted. And I saw that opportunity that um, that could be my ticket for the next bull ride. In this case, it's a plane ride <laughs> to, to, to the US. And then I convinced Intel to relocate me on a, L1B, an uh, intra-company transfer to do my American dream. So I convinced them to expand the business that they acquired by Giga, that I could help the revenue growth in the U.S. by relocating me to the U.S. But they said, on the condition that you will never ask us to sponsor your green card. Hey, but at least I got over to the U.S. I right. Need, one I step at a time. To, I need to find another step. How do I get the citizenship? <laughs> so one step at a time, I, I got, uh, so I arrived. I was relocated uh, in November 2002. So I've been in the U.S. for 18 years, except for two years in Hong Kong. I, I, I've been based here in, in Boston. But my, my, my original dream was to be in Silicon Valley, uh, being in California. It was three things. It was having an old convertible, see palm trees, and live by the ocean. <laughs> and small place to sleep because I was going to work and, and become the best that I could be because... Denmark was a little bit too small a pond for me to swim in. So uh, when you are a refugee, when you come from nothing, you're not going to be stopped by good enough. You want to see how far you can go. But luckily, by coincidence, I call it my accidental passion, even though I, uh, I started what I call export engineering uh, to convert that to the U.S. as like business engineering. And we didn't even have a 3D printer back in 92 to 99. Um, so I call 3D printing my accidental passion because my it's always because of a girl. 
So I didn't go. Okay. I didn't end up All Silicon Valley because of, start with the girl, right? <laughs> and the girl studied at BU, so I had to come and and had to be in Boston. But because of her, who's now my wife, uh, her friend's friend happened to be the financial controller at Zcor, which were the only two three D printing big three D printing company with a product below a hundred thousand, uh, and that was Zcor, and and that was how I got introduced to three D printing by accident. Uh, and it was a way for me to stay in the U.S. because they would then, uh, I knew that Intel would never sponsor me to become a citizen, so I had to jump anyway. And telecom was going down over 2000, 2001, 2002. So 3D printing looked pretty cool. I, I fell in love with it. And they, uh, on the condition that they would get me an H1B and sponsor my green card. Those were my condition. Yeah. And, and, and that's how I got my green card. Fantastic. Well... You started at Z Corp, which was later acquired by, uh, I think, 3D Systems, right? It's actually funny. It actually was acquired in uh, 2005 by a Danish company first. Oh, interesting. Uh, they did white format, uh, 2D uh, white format printing and scanning, contact scanning, and they even did those for HP. So we were acquired by a Danish company, and they asked me to come back to Denmark. And I was not going to come back. I didn't do all this work to go back to Denmark. So I stayed put and stayed true to Z Corp in this hostile takeover and didn't jump ship. And then later, the whole lot was acquired by 3D System in 2010 for $137 million when I jumped to 3D System and advised them to buy Z Corp. Ah, so that that's how that happened. Uh, so you have some unique insight into uh, 3D printing companies and how they compete in the market. It, it seems to me like 3D printing has become so ubiquitous that it almost feels like a commodity these days. And I have to imagine it's really difficult for some of the smaller, um, you know, boutique 3D printing service bureau companies to compete with these, the big boys like, you know, Proto Labs and Stratasys and 3D Systems. How, uh, how are smaller 3D printing service bureaus competing with these larger companies or, or are they not? Are they just getting, you know, smushed right when they start their company? Yeah. So, um, so I've seen a lot the last, last 17 years, but if you look at from, a materials point of view from plastic to composite uh, plastic for prototyping uh, composites for tooling and metals for manufacturing um, then you, uh, to answer your question in the early days um, plastic machines were very expensive so only the Boeing and Airbus the big uh, aerospace company could afford it but as those technology those patents expired the, the rise of Form Labs and Envision Tech and other uh, more affordable but high quality engineering uh, industrial graded material, then service bill to differentiate themselves, they had to move to a better material, more expensive material, because the easier FDM uh, extrusion base or, or Form Labs equipment that used to cost a hundred thousand you can get that for four thousand so it changed the market and democratized certain uh, uh, certain application especially prototyping so the incumbent move on to tooling and and now we're moving over to metal and titanium and 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 so forth as prototyping is becoming more a commodity not tooling and manufacturing because when you do prototyping when good enough is good enough well 
manufacturing, you need to do not one, two, five of, of a thousand different parts. For manufacturing, you need to do thousands of one, two, five parts and they, they have to be identical. They have to be a high quality to avoid recalls and lawsuits. So the requirements is much more difficult. So while there are many more players, um, to give you some idea, when I entered into this industry, the whole industry was not even a billion in valuation. The whole industry in in two thousand and three, and and not until last year in twenty nineteen did it just pass ten billion. So it has a, a projection and direction to become a full grown hundred billion dollar industry. And by my experience and my calculation, it should take a, at least 70 to 20 years more. But that's okay. I will be retired by that time. So I'm going <laughs> to ride this wave. So that's in your convertible with the palm trees, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I wish that people have, have advised me as an engineer that choose a technology, choose a, a career path in a technology that you can grow with and not so to be selective. And try to choose a growth, uh, and, and of course there are risk. But but if you pick the right new technology like AI or machine learning or automation or whatever new technology you can think of, you could build a career uh, on that. At yeah. least that's what I've done uh, deliberately uh, because uh, passion is also commitment. So I was committed to three D printing. And therefore, uh, now after 17 years, now I'm at my seventh 3D printing manufacturer. And, and, and they're all the biggest one in the industry. So I've really been riding this wave where most of the players you see today, like carbon, desktop, metal, HP, didn't, weren't even on the map five years ago. So imagine it's changing five, so fast. It's changing so fast. And imagine five years from now, you will have new yeah. players that I predict, like Google and Amazon and Apple, would be in three D printing, and they're not even on the map. So I'm excited about the future, and uh, and it's been it's been a, a ride. Well, I, I like that you mentioned Desktop Metal because they were uh, one of the companies at which you worked that I wanted to talk about a little bit. Um, they, of course, uh, manufacture 3D printers that print metal. Mm-hmm. Uh, something they do that I didn't realize was they also make a machine that, that rivals the Mark Forged machines, which uh, we use here at Pipeline, mm-hmm. and, and they print with continuous carbon fiber. Um, I, I'm, I imagine you're familiar with Mark Forged, having worked at, at uh, Desktop Metal. What, what are some of the differences between the Desktop Metal um, carbon fiber machine and the, the Mark Forged machines? Sure. Um, so I was the Chief Revenue Officer uh, at Desktop Metal. I joined September 2016 when it was uh, uh, with a valuation of $100 million. Uh, I was part of the team that grew to $1.5 billion. The initial uh, focus of the company was to disrupt um, uh, high-speed binder jetting. In addition to that, for that was to address the production segment. For prototyping, it was an extrusion FDM process. Uh, but as we learn, uh, so I, I left Desktop Metal last year and joined Arrivo this March. But what we learned is you. Uh, as you get exposure to a lot of applications, sometimes metals is just overkill. You don't need metal. And sometimes composite is, is good enough. 
So to answer your question, the product that uh, later came out was announced at Formnext was called DM Fiber. And it was really to take a, a novel existing technology with uh, automated uh, fiber placement by tape that has already been used for 20 years, big white uh, pre-pregged tape that you, uh, when you fly on planes, those planes, uh, fuselage or wings were made by those tape. So you have these huge robots, a uh, printer system for two, three million, and you'll put out this white tape uh, you, they heat it up, it's like pre-prepped with most likely a peak with some kind of aerospace graded uh, carbon fiber. And they spread out this tape, it's usually more than four or five inches wide. And then you have a compact uh, compaction roller, and that's how you have the placement of the carbon fiber. Uh, basically, they took that concept and miniaturized that. So you, can, so you can call it a micro AFP. So basically, if you shrunk that down to a small tape of 2-3 mm millimeter, you miniaturize that and you can fit it on a FDM MakerBot typical extrusion and you have interchangeable head. You could have, if you say you're printing a, a dish, you could have the perimeter based by the second head, which is a normal FDM like a MakerBot or or a dimension, but the inside to have reinforcement, you could switch over to the micro AFP tape that is flat. It is, uh, and, and you put that to reinforce in different direction because carbon fiber, unlike metal, is not isotropic, meaning the same property X, Y, Z is only directional. So it's only right, strong right. X and Y, not Z. So you need to mesh those layers. But gantry place system, you can the Z strength will always be the weakest because you're just putting tape on top of each other, uh, crisscrossing. Sure, yeah. right? Okay, so, so functionally, it sounds like pretty similar to the Mark Forged machines. Mark Forged still so uses tape. tape; they have just tape, not strands. Filament. Yeah. yeah. So instead right. of round filament, it is. Uh, uh, but most of the Mark Forged sales and success, to my understanding, has been the Onyx uh, chop uh, carbon fiber. It's not yes. continuous. And if you do continue, will always be superior. But it depends on the application and your available budget, right? Sure. Yeah. So Mark Forge does have continuous carbon fiber as well. That's what we use a lot. And um, just it doesn't even matter Mark Forge or desktop metal. The the technology using continuous carbon fiber, I think, is so valuable. I mean, we do mostly test fixtures and, and equipment, and we've used uh, those printed parts as final deliverables for a lot of this stuff because the continuous carbon fiber makes the parts, you know, almost as strong as aluminum. They're really strong. Yep. Um, so this I, is probably... So, a, a, I, so I show you all excitement, right? Because uh, for years, you talk about uh, plastic 3D printing, and then there was this big buzz about metal 3D printing the last five years. Uh, it was very clear to me, people seem to neglect that in between composite actually have, uh, depending on the application, you could make parts that are, are five times stronger, more than five times stronger than titanium and a third of the weight. So if you want something lighter and stronger, there is a space for composite, but people really don't understand or know that. Uh, because the early days of composite, not enough marketing dollars has been put into composite. And therefore, you saw a lot of the, uh, I contribute a lot of the promotion and teaching and in, inspiring the market with carbon fiber is Mark Forge, but, but they were only known to be good for jigs and fixtures. 
uh, they want it to be do end product, but end product might be bigger than just a smaller uh, bill envelope, and and they need something bigger. Well, this is a good place to take a quick pause and uh, share with our listeners that the Being an Engineer podcast is powered by Pipeline Design and Engineering, where we work with uh, predominantly medical device engineering teams who need turnkey custom test fixtures or automated equipment to assemble, inspect, characterize, or perform verification or validation testing on their devices. And you can find us at testfixturedesign.com. We're speaking with Tuan Tramfam today, who is truly an expert when it comes to 3D printing and uh, probably has more experience with the technology than, than anyone else that, that I've ever met. Um, we started talking about metal 3D printing, and uh, I've, I've always seen prices for metal 3D printing being relatively expensive, certainly a lot more than, than the, the plastic 3D printing counterparts. Do you see that as being the case long term, or should we expect for uh, prices for for three D printed metal parts to start coming down here in the next I don't know three five years? Uh, absolutely, uh, and that's uh, mainly going to be driven by a new print engine of metal binder jetting, because what I've learned uh, was that. A customer would ideally learn a technology, a, a system, a printing system that they can leverage not just for prototyping, but all the way to that learning to do a manufacturing. So when Desktop Metal had the Metal FDM, which was extrusion-based, debinding and sintering, uh, whatever you learn, you can only get the material property that you can on that system. You couldn't transfer that knowledge to a binded jetting system, which is uh, it's not extrusion and it's not rod based, but it's a powder bed. So, so therefore, that's why you saw that some metal saw that there is a need for an affordable metal binded jetting system that could do prototyping, tooling, and manufacturing instead of six hundred thousand a million, but get it down to one hundred and fifty. So, once you do that, uh, to answer your question. The, the dominant metal technology today uh, has been, the last 26, 7, 27 years, has been laser powder bed, but it's laser bed, so um, laser uh, driven. So it is um, it's essentially high-precision micro-welding layer by layer. So you're confined by how quickly you can have your melt pool uh, using your laser beam one, two, or four or more, but those are very expensive. So driving the cost down, doing indirect metal with metal binder jetting and just print them good enough in the green stage and just put them into a sintering furnace and doing batches. And this is, to answer your question, this is when you have the financial justification of a tennis ball moving costs of dollars per cubic inch down to cents per cubic uh, inch. Okay. Because you're not using laser, you're literally just using metallic powder and a binder. And a binder is mainly water with some kind of glue content. Huh. That's the secret sauce. When you can have the productivity and throughput, your only constraint is now the sintering furnace. But then you do batches of much. Uh, so instead of 5, 10 cubic inches in, uh, in build rate, Bindergenic can get you up to four, 500 uh, cubic inches per hour. And, and that technology exists now, right? I mean, there's some of the metal. A, it's actually been around for quite a long time through X1. They were the only player... But 
I don't know, due to leadership, due to marketing, due to the lack of their own sintering furnace to complete uh, the process to make a metal part. Uh, it, the core competence of Testament is actually the sintering furnace. I would not be surprised. I predict a future where Decimal would be more famous for being a sintering furnace company than actually a 3D printing company. Oh, interesting. Okay. Maybe they'll start selling their sintering furnaces to other metal 3D printing companies. They could if they want to, because if you look at the entire industry, even with the dinosaurs of Stratasys and 3D system for the last 35 years, none of them have offered a sintering furnace. Nobody's offering that, not even Swedish Digital Metal or anybody else. So the furnace was the bottleneck that desktop metal sought to uh, internalize because desktop metal knew that, uh, that they could sell it out of printers, but unless the supply chain could fulfill and support sintering furnace at affordable rate instead of three, four, five hundred dollars per sintering furnace, unless you can bring that below a hundred thousand, it's going to be a very expensive uh, value proposition. So uh, fixing that, uh, uh, yeah, Decimal could own the whole market by just uh, uh, fulfilling Citroen Furniture, all the players in the market today and in the future if they wanted to. Interesting. Okay, well, your your current role is with a company called Arivo, which is focused on composite manufacturing in, if I think I have this right, on-demand production environments. Um, can you share a little bit about the, the technology that allows Arivo to service both on-demand and production quantity customers? Sure. Um, so before answering that, I would say, so uh, I spent the first 11 years of my career in plastic polymer 3D printing, and I got super excited about metal, and I spent the next six years in metal with the Swedish Arkham and then Desktop Metal. Um, but when I thought about my next move, I realized that that's why I, I, let, I made the comment earlier that between plastic and metal, there was composite. And there was, uh, I believe there's a, a growth potential if people knew about it. And as the technology progresses, that uh, there could be more applications done with composite. So I joined, uh, I was lucky, uh, fortunate to join Arrivo uh, early March, just when pandemic hit the market. Where, no, uh, where there were now less job available. I, I would say I was lucky to get a job starting March 1st. So I joined Avivo at, uh, um, at as a chief revenue officer. And I will say the three reasons why I joined them was one uh, is the people. And, and because they had six years to mature the technology, I thought it was, it was ready to be commercialized. Um, and what I found fascinating is not only is it, uh, so basically it's a filament, but it's a pre prick with half peak, half aerospace graded AS4. Um, so it's 50-50 in fiber void content. So it's a pre prick you have that filament. It goes through a six axis robot arm and through a deposition head, you have a laser source that heat the filament, you heat up the peak, at the same time, you're hitting the previous substrate, and then you have the uh, deposition. And as you deposit uh, the filament that you heated up with the previous substrate, you have a compaction roller that squishes it together. So you have very strong Z uh, material property. So I thought robotics is part of the fourth industrial revolution. I thought composite could be stronger than metal and lighter. And, uh, and what I learned from my 17 years of 3D printing is that the weakest link 
uh, 3D printing is basically hardware, software, materials, but locking the process. But the software designing for additive or designing for the technology or the materials, the software was the, the weakest link. And most 3D printing manufacturer software was basically just a slicer. You import some kind of cat and you slice it up and you just, uh, it's just a dumb slicer. Just doing the toolpath. But what the market really needs is a customer like you need, really need is, can I take my design? Can I do additive FEA analysis? Uh, wouldn't it be nice that the software can do topology optimization, morph it to a topology optimized ge geometry, and then create a virtually potential toolpath and then do a virtual simulation, knowing all of this before you hit print and then it prints. There's only one company that can do that in the entire industry, and then it's only a Vivo. So there's some metal might be, the core competence might be of the many, the centering furnace. I would say Vivo is actually the software, not the robot and the deposition. Oh, interesting. Can you share some of the parts that Arivo has helped customers redesign in composites that maybe historically had been produced with, um, you know, uh, maybe casting or, or other more traditional manufacturing processes? And what, what was the value proposition for the customer moving to a 3D printed composite material? Sure. Uh, are you a cyclist by chance? Do you like bicycles? I, I, I have been in the past. <laughs> so, so remember that the composite carbon fiber was already in 3D printing through a gantry FDM system like Mark Ford and Isoprint 90 Labs, but they were confined by a smaller bill envelope. Um, the Arrivo system is a robotic, um, not only is a six-axis robot, but with a, a, a rotating build table. And that's awesome for, we only offer continuous carbon fiber. So this is how you can do a very oval unibody structure is perfect. So to answer your question, um, we explored making a bike, uh, a bike frame two years ago uh, for Emery. Uh, the Emery bike was one of our first prototypes for making a 3D printed bike frame to see if we could do it. So to answer your question for the last many decades, um, when you want to buy a full uh, carbon fiber bicycle from track specialized Pinarello, those were done by manual layout of often three, four hundred patches of carbon fiber uh, patches or weaves, and then they were manually placed by a human. And then they were usually thermosets that need to go into an autoclave and oven, and then fuse it all together uh, to make a strong frame. So manual labor, sintering, uh, autoclaving, and there were a lot of challenges of making a strong, robust frame because it could shatter because it's just basically a lot of patches coming together. So we thought that doing using continuous carbon fiber for a unibody bike frame uh, could be a killer app for Arrivo. So we took it to the next level, learning from our early days of Emory Bike, doing an e-scooter, uh, the e-motor that uh, we uh, showed as a marketing application, we decided to do a the Superstrata bike. Uh, which we launched uh, about 15 days ago on March 13 on Indiegogo. Because if we want to show the market that it can be done, we have to show them. So we designed a bike within five, six weeks, did a functional prototyping, we did a video, 
and we launched on an Indiegogo for half the cost. Instead of 4000 you can buy a fully 3D printed, customized to your size for right now, still today, it's like more than 50% off. Um, a 3D printed bike unibody without the C2. There's no C2. Because we're using continuous carbon fiber layer by layer, and we can choose the direction of that, we can bypass the C2, and also we can customize the hollowness inside the down tube to fit the battery. So whether you're biking uh, our Superstar bike or e-bike, it looks identical on the outside. Is whether it has a battery inside or not. So it's the same. So basically, you get a, an e-bike that doesn't look like an e-bike. Now you you mentioned that um, the Arivo process for depositing the fiber uses a, a six-axis robotic arm. Is that right? Yep. So does that mean that uh, as opposed to traditional 3D printers where the, the printing head, you know, it moves around in X, Y, and then it, it raises or lowers in Z, does that mean that the Arrivo process allows the printing head to have much more flexibility in terms of degrees of freedom? It's, it's not just stepping up one layer at a time in the Z direction, but it can, you can, it can move around in almost infinite directions if it's a six-axis robot. I can tell you are an engineer because you <laughs> you are spot on. Uh, the Aviva system is actually true 3D. Like you said, we believe that all the FDM system, even Mark Forge, is really 2.5D because the only difference is they still have a gantry XY to move the head and mm-hmm. it's only the bit can only go up and down in Z. Right. So Aviva with the six-axis robot arm, you can do... Uh, true 3D, you can curve the head. So now the first few lines, the bottom of this canoe that I'm showing you, you can have it XY like a gantry system, but then you can switch to do it oval, uh, like Mm. a curve. And if you want to, because we have a built rotating table, we can actually print uh, vertically on the side and then continue 90 degree on the other side. So we have true 3D uh, mobility in our deposition and this is how you get a superior not just xy strength but xyz strength that is very cool and i encourage all the listeners to go to the superstrata website and there's some video of this printing head is really neat i mean it's just like two on mentioned this this six axis robotic arm that's laying down fiber very cool um oh shucks i had a question and then i lost it well uh Tuan, tell me, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face in your industry? Um, I would say, if you look at what I've been trying to do, right, is the last 17 years, I've been trying to sell 3D printing system. But to really understand additive manufacturing, I faced that all the software engineers were by education for the last many decades. They were educated for subtraction manufacturing. So it, I learned that the younger engineers who might have seen a 3D printer during their uh, uh, college, uh, technical college, the younger engineer are more open to newer technologies versus uh, the previous generation. They only understood uh, designing for casting or milling or machining, subtractive technology, and they really don't get, they're a little bit worried about what is all this additive. So there was, this is related to why software is the, is the weakest link because people don't understand 
additive manufacturing that you have this design freedom and you design your part differently. You're no longer having all this waste by machining it all out. You can actually just deposit what you need. So it's a, a thought process. So it's really additive manufacturing is really disrupting the way we think. And and I've learned that the uh, getting started with 3D printing, most uh, most customers says that can you make this part that I've done uh, subtractively for the last two decades? Can you do that additively? Well, it's 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 a new technology. It's a new way. You're not even leveraging all the benefits that come with it. You are no longer confined by all these settings for subtractive and layer by layer. You can do organic shapes. You can do curve. Actually. The, the biggest contrast is I predict a future with additive manufacturing that in your room, if you look around, all the products you see, they have edges. For additive, your home, your TV screen, it will have curve. I would predict a future where everything designed being used, there will no longer be edges because you have that design freedom and now you can make through 3D printing organic shapes. So it will, yeah. the, the future will be more beautiful. When there are no edges, that's why you see beautiful, beautiful cars. It's not like a edgy Volvo, uh, a Volvo you saw back in the eighties. Remember that, or yeah, a yeah. Trabant and all that. Now it's beautiful curve where there's no edges at all, especially not on a Tesla. That <laughs> that's a great way to put it. The future will be more beautiful. I love that. And I remember the other question I was going to ask at Arivo. I I think if I understand correctly, um, you can do a small volume. I mean, one off, two off printed parts. There is Arivo truly a a three D printing service bureau where just like Proto Labs, I could send a part and say, you know, I'd like to get this printed, and I get a quote back, and I get it printed. I don't know a week later, something like that. Yes, that that has been what Arriva has done all this time, but what I've done uh, differently now is if you, that's how you get started, uh, uh, parts manufacturing, so, but uh, you now also have the option to bring it in-house if you want to. So that's why we announced we going to uh, build the largest uh, composite print farm. We're gonna start with 12 uh, aqua printers of ours to enable, uh, uh, our technology to be used for bike frames, for aerospace, for automotive industry, where they don't need to buy, uh, own the equipment. We will do it for them. So we are like a, a strategist, direct manufacturing, Red Eye, Proto Labs. We are a service provider, but you can grow with us. You can. You never need to buy any equipment. But should you want to, you have the option to buy it later on if you want to do secret stuff and you don't want your cat file to leave your building, you then have the option to to purchase. So we start with um, this, starting this Christmas, we start with uh, a dozen aqua printers. Uh, we have chosen the location outside of uh, Ho Chi Minh City, which used to be called Saigon, where I was born. We're gonna start with 12, but we're gonna grow that to 120 and beyond. So this will be all the parts you need, not only for uh, the parts uh, being printed, 3D printed, but also if you need uh, a sanding, machining, assembly, painting, we will offer beyond just 3D printing. And there are a lot of affordable, skillful uh, talent pool in Vietnam. It's a good alternative to China and Taiwan. So uh, both the CEO and I, Sonny Wu and I, Sonny Wu was uh, also the... Uh, the founder of Misfit Wearables that was acquired by Fossil Watch Group for $260 million. 
Uh, we have an unfair advantage since both Sonny and I, we are both Vietnamese. <laughs> Unstoppable. So does that mean that uh, customers or companies can purchase one of the 3D printing machines that Arivo manufactures? Yeah, if they want to later on, but we'll start doing uh, whatever you need, a thousand bike frame, 10,000, 100,000. So we have the aspiration of, think of Amazon, AWS storage in the cloud. You don't care where those servers are based, how they're maintained, what kind of security. You just pay storage on demand. So the Revo Manufacturing as a Service is really capacity on demand. You tell us what you need and we will uh, allocate resources according to your needs. So if you have a de bike design that uh, you have five different bike design and you one is not doing so well, you can switch it overnight and, re uh, and reduce your capacity and volume and we will adjust accordingly. So you no longer have the... It's kind of like you see how we have all this ride-sharing, Uber or Airbnb. Uh, there will be a future that is happening where you just buy, you only need the parts where we remove all the concerns of getting operators, site facilities, site proving. You don't have to worry about the equipment. We can take care of all this for you and you just pay for capacity. But uh, at a certain point when you have high enough volume, you might want to internalize it and to maximize it. So you always have that option. Something. So it sounds like it sounds like a, a contract manufacturing facility that is you know specific to this this new three D this truly three D printing technology and then you mentioned that you'll be adding more traditional processes as well. Um, that sounds very interesting and, and no tooling right. If you want, if you want to make a change to your production design, you don't have to make a tooling change. It's because it's it's additive, not subtractive. Yeah, it will be the largest composites. Um print farm uh, service uh, service provider in the world for composites. And what what kind of parts are a good fit for this technology? I mean if if I'm if I have a little uh plastic injection molded housing, is that a good fit or are these more like larger things like like you know airfoils on an airplane and bicycle frames? Sure. Um so we we have applications uh, ranging over 10 different verticals from um, maybe it gives you an idea from volume from a baseball to a bike frame. So as you, if I give you the knowledge that a filament is less than 3 mm, 2.88, if you have that filament is the thinnest wall, the, the faster you can go over a big part from a tennis rider to a bike frame, there are more advantages in terms of using our technology. So we will probably uh, uh, justify the return on investment faster by medium to large part. But it ranges from uh, aerospace fuselage component to uh, non-structural automotive part to delivery drones. So basically where metal is too uh, expensive or too heavy or too corrosive, uh, you will move that over to composite. Even certain um, construction developer for building our hotels and, and offices, uh, the, the cement and the metal used for the uh, reinforcement, um, the carbon fiber will be much lighter and you can print it on demand on site and, and it's not corrosive. So we are exploring many different verticals, uh, but I would say for medium to large sizes, uh, it's going to be a sweet spot from volume 
from thousands to tens of thousands, but not millions. When you get to millions, maybe it makes more sense uh, to use traditional um, uh, available processes, unless you have a design that cannot be printed any other way than additive. Okay, that makes sense. Well, Tuan, thank you so much for, for sharing all this. It's been fascinating listening to your, your history and uh, all of the expertise you bring uh, about the 3D printing uh, field. Um, uh, if people want to get a hold of you, what's what's the best way for them to do that? Um, if they look up Tuan Tranfam on LinkedIn, uh, that is my main media where uh, I usually share uh, five cool articles or posting uh, stories about 3D printing every day for the last 13 years. So LinkedIn will be the best way. Terrific. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening.